Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and tonight you're hearing Indivisible from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. This show is a partnership between WNYC in New York and Minnesota Public Radio. For the next 14 weeks, I'll be exploring with your input and your insight the idea of identity in this new political landscape, how where we're from, what we do, where we live, how we worship, how we vote, shapes the way we see ourselves and how we see each other and why those differences so often lead to misperceptions. I mean, think about it. I'm opening this conversation tonight from a place, the upper Midwest, that a lot of beltway and coastal people think of as flyover land. Sure, it's It's all blizzards and farms and cheese curds up here. But the Midwest played a key role in electing Donald Trump, and lots of voters in typically blue Minnesota, particularly northern Minnesota, turned out for the president. So we may have more in common with red states than you'd expect. I think of what's going on in America as an information identity gap, and and here's how I think it works. You live in a small town in Pennsylvania and you voted for Trump. That's all I need to know. You must be a sexist or a racist. Or you're a professional woman who lives in a city and supported Hillary Clinton. You're a limousine liberal anti-patriotic feminist. I mean, that's how these tropes go, right? These distorted stereotypes just don't work, but they persist. How do we change that? By doing exactly what we're going to do tonight. And you are the key to this. I want to hear from as many people in as many places of different political persuasions as we can find. So if you live in Ohio, you live in Oregon, you live in Chicago or Georgia or Texas or anywhere in between, and you voted for President Trump, are there things that people assume about you that you don't think are fair? If you voted for Hillary Clinton, are there misunderstandings about who you are and what you stand for, too? I'd ask that you keep your calls concise. We want to hear from as many people as we possibly can this hour. And here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Here's the number again, 844-745-TALK or 8255. Get to me on Twitter. I've already been seeing a lot of you tweeting in. Love that. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest for the conversation, Jose Santos, is an anthropologist and a professor at Metro State here in the Twin Cities. And he's with me in the studio. And welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you so much, Carrie. Reed Galen is a veteran of many Republican campaigns as a strategist and the author of The American Singularity, A Guide Through Campaign 2016, and he's with us today from Salt Lake City, Utah. And, Reed, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. 
Thanks for having me, Carrie. Reed, I thought we would take the cliches head on, and I framed them a bit in the introduction, but you know that the stereotype among Democrats of Trump voters is someone who's doesn't have high education, they're intolerant, they're sexist, they're isolationist. And I think this rightly infuriates the many people who voted for the president and don't think that really defines them. So where do the stereotypes come from? Well, I mean, I think that stereotypes are common and prolific because uh, they tend to overgeneralize large groups of people, and they are a shorthand for people that you know may or may not be like us. Um, I think that if you think back to politics, right, you know, back in the mid 2000s, we had if you drove a Mercedes and you drank Chardonnay, you were a Democrat. (laughs) And if you drove an F-150 and you drank Budweiser, you were a Republican. And so in politics, you know, especially as someone who has run many, many campaigns and worked on even more, you start to segment folks by these very generalized traits because it it is trying to tell you something about what they will do when when election time comes. Now I think as far as the the people that voted for President Trump, you know, they are they are getting I think short shrift. Clearly not everyone that voted for Donald Trump is a racist, not everyone is a misogynist, uh and not everyone is a you know lower socioeconomic and you know uh lives in a town decimated by opioid abuse, right? If you look at the the voters uh for Donald Trump, you know, they cut across you know, certainly predominantly Anglo, uh, but they did cut across socioeconomic and economic uh, and, excuse me, educational uh, boundaries. And I think that, you know, remember that in American politics, we are still very tribal. You know, we only have two major choices, typically in elections, certainly in presidential elections, Republicans and Democrats. And for a lot of Republicans who, you know, very well have have known Hillary Clinton for decades and Mm -hmm. probably maybe disliked her for decades, she was an untenable choice even if Donald Trump wasn't necessarily much better. And a lot of people come home, you know, when November comes. And that happened, we know, in this election. Here's the other thing, Jose, that I think there is something satisfying in being able to say, I didn't I don't agree with your candidates positions. And I think I know everything I need to know about you because I can label you. I, I think there's a, there's a feeling of superiority There's a in feeling some of ways. superiority and power. Right. I, I think the, the labeling, the identity stuff, it, it makes a couple of things easier. One, it, it makes it easier to navigate the world because you don't have to get to know anybody. You already know everything about them. You take one look, you already know. And, and we use little cues to do that, right? How they look, how they sound, maybe words that they say. Like they'll say, as a feminist, and boom, I already know everything I need to know so I can stop listening. <laughs> right. Right. Or, uh, you know, I'm a conservative, so boom, I don't need to listen to him anymore. So on the one hand, it's, it's for navigating the social sphere in a kind of really easy way. And we do that in a lot of ways, oh, right? Yeah. Not just in the arena of politics. Time. No, not in politics. We do that day in, but day out. But it's destructive in um, politics. Yeah, it's destructive in politics. It's destructive in the coffee shop. It's destructive on the street. You know, um, somebody comes up to you, looks a certain way and asks for a quarter, you'll give it to them. Somebody else, you run to the other side of the street. Uh, and that's just how we work. But I think that the other thing that it does... Um, and I, I really do believe this is part of why so much of this is going on, is it makes it easy for leaders to manipulate us, it, is it makes it easy to hold these images up when you're in front of the crowd and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm dangling this caricature of people who are left over here or people who are right over here. So you're saying the politicians are using the stereotypes. I, I think leaders in general do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, we could blame the politicians we have right now 
more than we blame politicians in the past. I, I don't know. We'd have to do a study on that or something. But it is something that leaders do because it, it really allows us to focus on this us and them thing. We got to take care of us. And in order to take care of us, we need a them to contrast ourselves with. Um, we, we love to have something to blame when something hurts us, right? Um, if, if my child dies um, and I ask, why did my child have to die? You know, it's, it's not convenient for me. It, it doesn't help me at all to say, oh, um, you know, the, it, that just happens during surgery, right? There, there's, there's no meaning there for me. I've got nothing to go with other than trying to let go, which is really hard. But if I can say, those damn surgeons, Right. Or the medical system or something like that. That is there's something quick and easy and just very satisfying because it gives you something to to focus on. Let's go to some calls here. If you've just tuned in, we're talking indivisible radio and identity tonight. That that's my brief for the next 14 weeks to talk about who we are and how where we live and what we think and the church or the temple that we go to, or how we practice a faith and how we voted, shapes the way we think about ourselves, but also shapes the way we think about other people, especially if they voted for someone else. So I want to hear from you on this. 844-745-8255. Find me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio to the phones to Ravi in Atlanta. Hey, Ravi, hi. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Doing well. And what are you thinking about this? Um, I am just thinking, as I'm home, I'm thinking, you know, I am a naturalized U.S. citizen. So I think I have a different perspective than an average person who votes in this country. And having lived around the world, I feel like I voted Democratic this time, but I am an independent. And I feel like every topic we talk about, we have to bracket it in between. Is it Democratic? Is it Republican? Is it black? Is it white? It's really that. And so I feel like when we think that way, we don't have a productive conversation about any topic. We restrict our options. Ravi, we're kind of losing your line there, but I think we have the essence of what you were going to say. And let me add John Luke in Columbus, Ohio to that. Hi, John Luke. Uh, Hi. Uh, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And in terms of identity, I think there are a lot of people that didn't necessarily agree with what Hillary Clinton Hillary Clinton had to say, but voted for it because they weren't comfortable with Donald Trump representing America, considering some of the things he had to say about Mexicans and the way that he treated women. And I think a lot of people out there maybe aren't necessarily all that liberal, but voted for Hillary Clinton because they just didn't like who Trump was and what he meant America was going to be if he was voted president. So, so John Luke, I'm curious about whether when you tell people that you voted for Hillary Clinton, do you think people decide one thing or the other about you and maybe make some assumptions about you that aren't necessarily true? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, originally was a really big Bernie supporter, and I decided to vote for Hillary Clinton because I just couldn't stand who Trump was. And I think when people say that and hear that, they think, I guess I'm just a, a flat-out liberal, but I have you know conservative views, and I'm someone I, I personally think I'm someone with a multifaceted viewpoint. And for someone to just tent pull me or to put me in a group just because of who I voted for, I think is unfair. Okay, I appreciate the call. So, Reed, what do you hear in Ravi and John Luke there? Well, I mean, I, I think a couple of things. One, in in what John Luke said, I think is right, is that you know 
um, if you look back at uh, whether or not it was 1984 and the uh, you know the Reagan revolution where he took 49 states as a as a as a fairly conservative Republican, uh, or you know 96 with Bill Clinton or or 2008 with Barack Obama, um, you know as as I mentioned at the at the open, you know in presidential elections we're only given really two choices. Uh, two viable choices, anyway. You might have the Greens and the Libertarians, and this year we had Evan McMullen, who was who was mostly a Mountain West candidate. Um, but for the most part, you know, you don't you don't have any other options. So the idea that someone like Jean Luc said, "Well, look, I was a Bernie supporter, but I voted for Hillary because to me Trump just wasn't a viable option." Well, I mean, what what wh- he had a fifty fifty shot, right? And so the idea that somehow now all of all of the beliefs that you might have in someone Jean, like Jean Luc are suddenly attributed to him because he happened to vote for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump, I think is a, is, is a, is a painting with far too broad a brush. Uh, and I think with Robbie's, uh, from, from Robbie's perspective, uh, he's absolutely right. Look, I mean, I think that, you know, if, if whatever the issue might be, and I think we can see a number of them now uh, uh, popping up as, as Donald Trump has taken office and Republicans control Congress, there are lots of things that, that r- Democrats were probably in favor of when Barack Obama was in office. But now that there are things that Donald Trump and Republicans are in favor of, even if Democrats six months ago might have been in favor of those same things, because they are lockstep in opposition to Trump and the Republicans, it doesn't matter whether or not their opinion changed. I was for it when it was a Barack Obama thing. I'm against it now that it's a Donald Trump thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Lisa says on Twitter, most troubling stereotype for me, a professional, educated, left-leaning woman, is that Democrats are sheeple. And another listener on Twitter here said, Raymond says, I see the view of the liberal who doesn't work hard. I grew up on a farm. I have the scars to prove it, but I also have a grad degree. I think we're hearing some stereotypes there. Here's the other thing, Jose. I I heard from some people on Twitter this afternoon when I was tweeting out some of this, and I heard from people saying, I don't think there's anything wrong with assuming that because voters tolerate some of the language that Donald Trump used, some of the the racism that he displayed and some of the campaigning, that I can make a conclusion that these are voters who tolerate that. And that tells me something about them. But what does it tell us? Uh, it tells you something very, very basic about human beings, actually. And, and when Jean-Luc was talking, this is exactly what I was thinking. Notice he said, because Trump said certain things, because Trump said and did certain things, I could not vote for him. Right. Even if I don't like Hillary all that much, I cannot vote for this other person. And what happens is it's actually something cognitive. So that for Jean-Luc, Trump did something. He, he transcended. He violated something sacred, something sacred, something so important that it is inviolable. Right. You, you shouldn't mess with that. It's off limits, man. You can't do those things because this thing is so special. Um, and so I think part of the shock that a lot of liberals had is that, oh, my God, how can you win when you violated something sacred? Here's the thing. I've heard Trump supporters say the same thing in reverse. Absolutely. I couldn't vote for Hillary because of, you know, she did this or she did that. And so what you're doing, dealing with is like these competing notions of sacred. And when somebody violates the sacred, right, to put it in, in blunt terms, they're 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 an infidel or they're a defiler. OK, or so like so that. you are using some religious terms here, though. But you also right. mean you mean this at a personal values level. And that's probably one of the problems with the word sacred, because people immediately think of church or something like that. I'm actually talking about something cognitive, that your brain certainly has certain things 
that are like, no, man, you just don't do that, right? Um, you know, for some people, uh, it's things that you would say to a kid, uh, you would say to an adult, but you don't say that to a kid. You just don't do that, right? Um, and so when somebody does, you're like, whoa, 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 man, what do you, what do you think you're doing, right? Um, and we don't all have the same notion of what that thing is, but both of these candidates were crossing it. Right. And so once somebody crosses that line, they immediately in your head are like they are just the bad guy. Let me go back to the phones here to Rick in Boston. Hey, Rick. Hi. Thanks for waiting. Hey, how's it? How's it going? <laughs> uh, yeah, no problem. Um, so I'll try to make this quick. Uh, so I work in uh, a field that kind of we kind of work with uh, Planned Parenthood and their affiliates. Uh, it's I work for the office of Larry Nabisco, and I'm just. People think that because I'm affiliated with them, I would vote for Hillary, but I'm just really into the whole wall idea. And I think Donald Trump is just a little cutie. He's just really cute. And I want to kiss him. <laughs> okay, Rick, I'm not quite sure where you're going with that. but Okay. Um, Rick was saying, I work in the white collar field. I work with Planned Parenthood. I think he was going to add I'd voted for Trump. Let me go to Kathy in Redding, Pennsylvania. Hey, Kathy, hi. Thanks for waiting. Thanks. Uh, hi. I think I'm one of the people you were just talking about. I, I live in central Pennsylvania. It went Trump. Uh, the people around me are conservative. I teach in a, you know, in a uh, religious school. Uh-huh. Um, but I also teach at a community college at night. And I was offended by the fact that, you know, just because I teach I'm supposed to be not working hard just because, uh, you know, I have a master's degree. I'm supposed to be an elitist and I'm anything but that. And even though, you know, I could be marching in the right for life march one day, I'm still not going to agree with these other things where Trump said things that just violated things that I believe. Mm -hmm. So I ended up voting for Hillary. Even though you're saying that you hold conservative values. I do hold conservative values. I've raised five children. I, you know, teach in a uh, religious school. I, but I, you know, when once once the thing happened with the women, uh, I've worked real hard to be where I am. And once she started talking about women like that and talked about minorities, well, I also teach at a community college. Yeah. I mean, I think that's off limits. Yeah, like Th- this that. is. Kathy, thank you. Uh, Jose, this is interesting because she's talking about the sacred there. Yeah, right? absolutely. She's she's saying, hey, man, that line got crossed. And even though there's a part of me um, that goes conservative, once the line is crossed, he, he's the bad guy. Right. Like that's that's how we see him. Um, that's how, and Hillary did the same thing for other people. One, one thing she said, I, I noticed um, when she was talking about, um, you know, she works in education. So people see her as like she's she don't work hard. She doesn't have. Right. Like these these kinds of stereotypes govern our interactions all the time. Right. She's got to navigate that world. Um, And the only thing she had to do with it this time was her vote. You're listening to Indivisible Radio. I'm Carrie Miller. We're coming to you tonight from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we're talking about identity. I want to hear from you tonight if you're in Ohio, Oregon, Chicago, Georgia, Texas, anywhere in between about the misinformation, the misperceptions that people believe about you because you voted one way or the other. Talk to me about that tonight. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, 
Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And I think we're hearing about that change tonight. I'm Carrie Miller. An indivisible radio coming to you tonight from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. This show is a partnership between WNYC in New York and Minnesota Public Radio. And my frame for the next 14 weeks, for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, is about identity which is what makes it so great that I'm hearing from so many of you in so many different places. Reach us tonight by phone 844-745-8255. We want as large and wide of a cross-section of America as we can get in this conversation. You can tweet me. I hope you will. It's at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. My guest for our conversation tonight on misperceptions, depending on who we voted for, kind of distorted cliches, uh, this identity information gap that I think we're in the midst of. Jose Santos is with me. He's an anthropologist and professor at Metro State, and Reed Galen is with us. He's a veteran of many Republican campaigns as a strategist and the author of the American singularity. Reed, I want to read you something that I read in The Federalist uh, Mm -hmm. the other day um, by a young woman who felt that she could not sign her name to this essay, but she really blows a lot of these stereotypes out of the water. She voted for President Trump, and she wrote this, I'm a graduate-educated, millennial-generation, urban-dwelling white woman, and as a nurse practitioner, I've cared for women of many different religions, races, ethnicities, and sexual orientations. I'm also a silent Donald Trump supporter. And when I read that, I thought, well, there were apparently a lot of silent Donald Trump supporters out there who didn't feel like they could they could be open about it for some of the reasons that we're talking about tonight. What, what's your take on that? Well, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the, this young woman is a, is a perfect example. You know, she, she voted for Donald Trump, whatever ultimately her reasoning was, um, but my guess is whatever urban city, you know, whatever city she lives in, in her cohort of friends, my guess is, is that there's, you know, on any given night, uh, whether or not they're sitting around having dinner or just hanging out, having a cup of coffee, you know, probably in or an inordinate amount of Donald Trump bashing. And I think it is a, it's too bad that she probably sits there quietly um, as she listens. Maybe she laughs along with some of the jokes uh, you know, that they might tell about the president. Uh, but the idea that we are now in a place where even among friends and cohorts, you can't have a difference of opinion because that suddenly now excludes you, not just from the discussion, but from the group, I think shows you really where we are, which is people are now starting to self-select into places that are safe based on their belief systems. And the more of that that happens, the more that we shield ourselves, the bigger and thicker a shell we build so that it becomes even more difficult for those groups to come together for osmosis to occur, to share ideas. And I think that she's a perfect example of what we're seeing as as Donald Trump starts his presidency. Jose, I was at the gym last night and a friend pulled me aside. She'd heard me talking about this and she said, I'm one of those people that you're talking about. I would never tell people in this circle 
of friends that we have or really anybody outside of my house that I voted for Donald Trump. How do we get past that? You know, uh, I'll tell you a little story, actually. So I've been doing diversity work at the university for maybe six years now, right, since I got there. So I've become kind of a person, I'm proud to say, that people will come to. Right. So I've had people come to me when, you know, when a professor says something really horrible. Right. Something racist. I've had people come to me when um, people people who are veterans and somebody says something, makes a joke about PTSD. They'll come to me. Right. Um, And and that's something I feel really great about. Well, just this past week, um, somebody came to me. Please let me talk to you uh, and seemed extraordinarily anxious. And we get in my office and they close the door um, and it says I'm conservative. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a conservative, right? Um, and and all of a sudden, you know, there's this, there's this huge reversal, right? Because we're like, right. oh, I thought this was supposed to work the other right. way around. Right. Um, what's common to all these things is is that experience of terror, of realizing, oh my God, my identity is marked. My identity is marked. Oh my God. Um, for and for a lot of people, I think it's the first time that's ever happened to them, right? Really. And and the, it's it's so terrifying to deal with that sense of isolation, that sense that you've got like this this mark on you, that if other people know. Right. Um, that there's going to be all this this backlash against you. Right. And you're imagining the worst case scenario. I think that's that's where fear really has its powers. When you're imagining the worst thing possible, I'm not going to have any friends anymore or my coworkers are going to do this, that and the other. And I think what what politicians are good at is feeding stuff like that. Right. Um, feeding that fear, um, putting out more stuff. I mean, you know, the press will put out things. Uh, you know, this woman had this list of things of like, oh, my God, do you know what they've done to Tea Party people in the past? You know what they've done to, you know, from all over the country. And she was carrying around all these little fact sheets that she had in case she ever needed to defend herself. Wow. Right. In case of attack. So I think it's it's a social phenomenon. Human beings do it. It's it's nasty. It's cruel. Um, and, and that's the times we live in. And I think the thing that angers me the most is we don't have to do that. But we didn't bother to learn any other way. To the phones to Bill, uh, right here in Minneapolis. Hey, Bill. Hi. Thanks for waiting. Oh, there's not a problem at all. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the military, voted for Hillary, and I, I cannot go out in uniform without somebody coming up to me and telling me, oh, I, I, tell you a common thing on how, how happy I must be that Trump won and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, so definite stereotype about if you're in the military, you voted for Trump. Some truth to that, I would say there was definitely a majority of uh, people in the military that did vote for Trump, but there's plenty of people who didn't as well. And, and honestly, having he's my commander in chief, I guess I'm not going to say anything else. But um, I, I would, I, I guess, one more comment before I hang up. Um, like I said, a lot of people in the military that I'm friends with do, did, did vote for Trump, probably the majority. And so you're right, they're not they're not a racist, they're not a misogynistic. But I will say that stereotypes do exist for a reason. And if you are racist, if you do have misogynistic tendencies, you voted for Trump. Hmm. I, I had a question for you. Are you still there? Bill, are you there? Yeah, I'm yeah. still there. Okay. Bill, if, if I can ask you something. You know, you describe something. You're in uniform, right? Um, and somebody comes up yeah. to you and says something like that to you. And I think it's really important because I, I want people to hear this. When somebody does that to you, how does it feel? You know, I'm a little taken aback because they're making assumptions like that. But at the same time, I understand it because of the stereotype. Um, and at the same time, too, when I'm when I am there in uniform, you're not supposed to talk politics. I don't talk politics with them. I just say, you know, there's people in the military that voted for Trump or support Trump. There's people in the military that voted for Clinton that support Clinton. Whoever wins, they're going to be our commander in chief. And 
I will support whoever wins. But but it sounds like it's a pretty uncomfortable moment when people come up with assumptions. Jose, what were you? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. I mean, it's definitely it can be an uncomfortable moment, especially um, some people are pretty enthusiastic about. Oh, come on, you can tell me. I know you voted for Trump. But, uh, Jose, you know, and there's been a couple of instances where I did say, you know, I, I really didn't, but. Um, yeah, generally speaking, because you're in uniform, you do try and stay out of that. Bill, I appreciate the call. Jose, what were you getting at there? That that, that uh, I think once people realize, like, you know, this, this is happening to Bill, right? Like, he seems like a decent guy, right? Uh, and you make this assumption. And, and not only are you, you know, saying something rude to this guy, you're totally wrong. You're completely wrong. You, you had this assumption about him, and you were dead wrong. And you messed with his day. You took his time. Right. And you're, you're saying something about who he is. You took one look at this guy and you decided everything you needed to about him. And, and I think that's that's the it's the same issue we're dealing with when we're dealing with racism, when we're dealing with sexism. Um, and now there's this sort of this this politicalism. Right. For lack of a better word um, that we're seeing reflected everywhere. Um, and there's there's plenty of reasons for that. You know, for, there's plenty of like it's, it's a nasty social situation out there. Um, but I, I think the, the more people hear from guys like Bill, I, I think they'll, they'll stop, stop making assumptions and start talking to each other. And then they can argue about other things other than who they are. Call here from Farah in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Farah. Hi. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm a white female and with a graduate degree and... I'm one of those people that I felt like I couldn't really talk about the fact that I voted for Trump um, because everybody assumes that you are a racist or um, homophobic. And like I told the girl that answered the phone, um, the reason I'm calling in is one of the things I have to say that maybe wouldn't go along with voting for Trump is that I had the opportunity to spend Christmas, you know, several Christmas invitations from friends and family and the people that I felt closest to that I wanted to spend Christmas this year with was um, one of my best friends and his uh, Mexican husband. So, you know, Hmm. as far as not fitting the stereotype, um, I just feel like sometimes people assume that you're racist or whatever, homophobic or bigot or whatever um, when you vote for Trump. However, I did my research on Hillary, and I um, have never been a big fan of hers. Anyhow, I'm, re- I'm a registered independent. Mm-hmm. Um, I've voted for both Democrats and Republicans, and I actually voted for um, Governor Roy Cooper as opposed to <laughs> well, You um, are an interesting voter. You know, Farah, yeah. th- you, you've painted a very interesting picture here. So if I had knocked on the door of the House you were at Christmas morning, and I'd walked into the living room, and I saw you and your closest friend and his Mexican husband sitting there. I might not have assumed that there was a Trump voter in that group, but that would have been you. Right. Hmm. Reed, um, here's the here's the question that I've been thinking about, which is for Farah and some of the other people who have called. You know, in some ways, you're put into a position of proving a negative which is almost impossible, right? Because if the assumption is that you're racist or homophobic or 
uh, or any of the other things that have been attributed to voters of President Trump's, you have to somehow say, that's not me and here's why. And that's almost impossible. It is. And I, and I think that, as Jose mentioned uh, in, in one of his earlier statements about things being cognitive, um, you know, politics is a very emotional, uh, you know, uh, thing. And so when when if it's Farah or, or whoever uh, or the nurse you were talking about in the story you referenced, um, you know, when someone says, oh, yeah, I'm a Trump voter and the, the person or people to whom they're speaking are taken aback by that, their first reaction is one of great and powerful emotion. And that right. powerful emotion thereby blocks any rational thought, generally speaking, that's going to flow from that. Because as you pointed out, the entire purposes of this show is that once someone has made a determination that you voted X or Y, Trump or Clinton, that all of a sudden now, that's it. It's a closed door. It doesn't matter whether or not you, you'd known you'd, you'd been watching Hillary Clinton for 25 years on the American stage and you decided, I just can't have anything to do with her. This is someone who plays by her own set of rules. You know, there are any number of things that made Hillary Clinton look, whether you like her or not, she was not a great candidate. And she was a candidate who was ultimately unable to emotionally connect with the people she needed. Donald Trump was able to do that. He hit a very core emotional nerve with the people that voted for him, and they voted for him passionately. And the people that turned out for him turned out in places like the blue wall that we discussed, and Hillary Clinton loses, you know, loses Pennsylvania. She loses Michigan by 10,000 votes. These are places that if she had been able to communicate with these folks on a more primal level, she would likely be president today. But it is that same that is it is that same emotional response, though, that also blocks a lot of people off. from speaking. I really hear that. Jose, I also I also think that when you're starting as a voter from a place of let me tell you five reasons I'm not the racist you think I the the openness is gone basically the, the thing I, I hate about it is you know back to your identity gap thing right. is people will argue endlessly um, and there's there's no resolving it because the problem they have with each other is who the other person is right and so it's like or oh, who they think they yeah yeah are, who they, who they right? think they are yeah. right um, and so if if I'm coming at this uh, if I'm coming at Donald Trump and I'm like you you fundamentally are a horrible human being. Um, what could I possibly achieve with that other than, you know, let them know that that's what I think? Um, I think really that there needs to be a focus on, you know, I don't know who you are, but I got a problem with what you did. And and I think uh, when, or even, more even like, when it comes I, to I like I want to know the, what you did, yeah, the, why you did what why you did. Why did you do it? Right? Because, which is, a, which it is OK. Like, yeah, I got it's It seems like a problem to me. So if even if it's voting, it's like, you know, I don't know who you are. You voted for Trump. I don't know who you are. I don't like that you voted for Trump. Can you help me understand that? <laughs> Right. And that's and it's in and that's a completely different conversation. Right. We don't do that. Then I need to know every uh, I already know everything I yeah, thought I knew I about you. I already know you. what I'm doing. And right. what I'm doing is yelling at a wall. Right? right. I'm yelling at a mirror, which is the image that I put up of you. Um, and, and it's and it's endless. And I think that's exactly what happened in the debates uh, between Hillary and Donald. Um, they were it, it was an identity clash and it, and it wasn't a, a debate in the traditional sense of the term. But I also think that's not what people wanted to see. They wanted to see the identity fight. If you've just gotten in on the conversation here on Indivisible Radio, um, my my focus for the next 100 days of the Trump administration, 95 now, I think, uh, is is this idea of the information identity gap and the 
the distortions that come out of making up our minds about one another because of the candidates that we supported. When I raised this on Twitter today, a lot of people immediately fired back and said, I don't need to know anything else about that person, my neighbor, somebody in my community, somebody I work with. All I need to know is that they voted for Donald Trump. And this is a conversation tonight to say, maybe you do need to know more. And what does it mean when you're on the receiving end of that misperception. So hearing from you tonight, I hope whether if you voted for Donald Trump, are there things that people assume about you that you don't think are fair? If you voted for Hillary Clinton, are there misunderstandings about who you are and what you stand for? I want to grab a call here from Elizabeth in Madison, Ohio. Elizabeth, I'm a little tight on time, but I really want to hear what you have to say. Right. I work in an evangelical church. I'm a pastor, but I work in an evangelical church, predominantly white church, Uh um, predominantly Republican area. And so, again, people assume because 81 percent of white evangelical Christians voted for Trump that I as well fell fell on the bandwagon. Um, And actually, those of us who were not in support of Trump have to remain quiet because they'll assume we're heretics. They'll assume we're abortion loving, left leaning, crazy people who not follow the doctrine of the church. Um, and so it was an extremely difficult election season for the couple of us in that community who don't, um, you know, represent how the evangelical, white evangelical community voted. So so most of the people in the congregation, in the church that you work for, do not know right. how you voted, and you wouldn't tell them. Oh, no, absolutely. First of all, I'm a pastor, and I don't think it's right for me to tell them. But even if I did, um, there would be serious backlash. I have a couple of friends who do not make their political views known in our church because there is backlash. We have people in our church who post openly on social media that people who vote liberal or vote on the left or even people who are moderate must not follow the doctrine of the church because only true Christians vote Republican. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's remaining in the shadows in a predominantly Republican, um, heavily voted for Trump area. Well, I'm really grateful for your call. Thank you, Elizabeth. Real briefly, Jose. Yeah. Um, the, I, I, my first field work in El Salvador was actually with the evangelical Christians. And, and it is a very identity-based thing where there's so much about your life that should be determined by the identity, I am a Christian. So I'm a Christian, therefore I go to these places and avoid these other places. And the way that has overtaken um, politics in the United States, where religion and politics seem to have these correlations, that's problematic. It's exactly this identity gap that you've been talking Let's about. Let's come back and talk about how faith influences this, because that's one of the things I was thinking about where you worship, how does that connect to how you voted, how does it connect with the way you see your intrinsic values, and then what happens when people make a lot of assumptions about whatever faith community that you belong to and whatever candidate that you supported. This is Indivisible Radio from Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, Indivisible Radio, coming to you tonight from Minnesota Public Radio. And on Thursday nights, you'll be hearing me for the next 100 days of the Trump administration. I'm going to examine American identity. Who's part of the national narrative? Who feels left out of that narrative? How might 
our long-term sense of ourselves be changing. And we think it's pretty important that we're doing this outside the Beltway. And I love hearing from a lot of you in North Carolina and Ohio. Talk to me tonight about the assumptions, the perceptions that people have when you talk about your own political values or or who you voted for. Do people make assumptions about you that you feel kind of compelled to to correct? And yet that opens up a can of worms, a dangerous conversation. 844-745-8255 and on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, and use Indivisible Radio. Reed, I just have to come to you on this because mm-hmm. Jose has said a couple of times that politicians are very good at understanding this and using it for their own mm-hmm. ends. Well, you've worked for a number of politicians at a at a national level. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this was, uh, to to echo something Jose said earlier in the program, this was, a, the 2000 elect, uh, 2016 election is where we took all of our political norms uh, and threw them in the waste paper basket. Everything that we had sort of thought of as a normal political cycle, uh, how campaigns were going to operate, how campaigns were going to communicate. I don't mean technically, I mean, actually the things they were going to say and do uh, were just completely different. And I think one of the most troubling things that we saw this year was that both uh, President Trump and Mrs. Clinton uh, were more than willing on an ongoing basis to not just insult one another personally, um, but really insult one another's voters personally. And I think what we what we miss in the sort of sheen of the 24 hours news cycle or Twitter or Facebook is that they're actually insulting American citizens. And I think that what you saw was, you know, if we talk about the deplorable yeah, speech or I, I whatever it was. I figured that's what you were thinking about. Trump did it really, too, though. Absolutely, oh, yeah. he did. Absolutely, he did. From the get-go. That is, in fact, how he started his campaign uh, and continues it, frankly, to this day, I think, on some levels. Um, so the the idea of dividing people in for political gain is not necessarily new. What we have seen, though, in the past, I think— is our candidates, you know, especially at the presidential level, who are trying to exhort their supporters to a positive change or uh, or retention if it's a, a re-election campaign. This was the first time where we saw that Donald Trump was really exhorting them to anger, disaffection, and ultimately Mrs. Clinton got right on board with him. Marion is saying here, Jose, before you answer, great conversation on Twitter here. Uh, you've helped me to understand why people voted for Trump crossing the line for each candidate swayed votes. You were going to say to Reed. Oh, yeah, Reed, absolutely. I think one of the things that that worked here um, is that, say, you know, a candidate can say something that insults people and angers them. But by angering those people, they've actually made other people really happy and made <laughs> made them like, oh, my God. So when. Uh, OK, when, tell me what you mean by so that. So like when Trump uh, when Trump, you know, he he says things that are un PC, right? Uh, he angers the PC crowd, but that makes the people who hate the PC crowd so happy. And all of a sudden, Trump mm-hmm. is one of them. Right. And so I, I think in some ways, you know, the, the social world can be kind of like a bar room. Right. Um, and, you know, this this notion of sacred that I was talking about. Think of it this way. What is it it would take for somebody to say something where you just have to punch him in the face? Right. It's oh, you said something about my mom. Why would you go and say that? Because now I have to do that. Right. Um, but I think what they're doing is they're saying things that they know other people in the bar 
when they get punched, yeah. other people are going to stand right. up and exactly. punch the person that right. punched them down. Exactly. And, I mean, and that's is, what we're dealing like with This is like Facebook. Here. You've just described yeah. <laughs> the political conversation Facebook. on Facebook, right? Ian says, um, I've had almost the full range of reactions to these calls. But I think it's constructive, and he's grateful that we're hosting the conversation. From Twitter, you can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use uh, hashtag Indivisible Radio. By the way, you can also find all of these conversations on the podcast, and you can go to the website for that. To the phones, to Corianne in Brookings, South Dakota. Hey, Corianne, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi, no problem. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm curious about how you're coming into this conversation. Tell me a little bit about what you're thinking. (laughs) Uh, I've just been confused through all of this, but uh, basically uh, I get judged on both sides of the coin. I'm an outlier is what I basically call myself. I live here in South Dakota amongst a lot of Republicans. Um, and the, my lifestyle as it sits now, I get labeled as a Republican, but, uh, if you get to know me, I would probably be labeled as a liberal. Uh, I have tendencies in both directions. So I get to get judged both ways. Yeah. So. Uh, so so when people first meet you, is there an assumption? I mean, is it hard to figure out who you would have supported politically? Or, or would I tend to make a judgment about that? I, I guess it depends on which context. Okay. Um, Prior to the election, for starters, I probably would have kept my mouth shut because I I would try to not uh, incite any conversations that would possibly be uncomfortable for others. Um, And now uh, post, uh, I guess, post the pussy grabbing, um, (laughs) I'll speak up and let everybody know almost immediately when they make an assumption, um, they'll find out. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I guess now now you would know. But before before that... um, I, it could go one way or another, depend on the environment that you met me in. Hey, can I ask you something that since uh, since I wanted to talk for just a moment about where faith fits into this, do you belong to a yeah. church? Would you tell your your fellow uh, faith community who you voted for? Um, I'm an atheist, so ah. I have no fellow faith community. Okay, really good to have your call, Corey Ann. Thanks very much. Reed, um, religion yeah. is something that has been a powerful identifier for the parties, and especially for Republicans for some time. Where does that fit in now, today? And where do you think that fits into the way voters identify with with individual parties? Well, well, I mean, I think that it it is not a surprise that if you tend to be a more uh, religious, church-going person, uh, that, that tends to translate, at least as far as someone who is who is looking at a at a, a given voter universe, I would put you more likely in the camp to vote for a Republican than a Democrat. That's not uh, obviously doesn't necessarily hold true 100 percent, um, but that is more likely the case. And I, it, that could very well be because there tend to be more conservatives, as you called it at the top of the show, in flyover country, mm-hmm. um, you know, places like a Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago. Big cities tend to it's not that they don't have faith communities, but a lot of the people who are probably more politically active are probably more secular in nature. Um, and, you know, it goes into the remember the the, the infamous or famous, however you want to think about it, uh, remarks that that then candidate Obama made in Pacific Heights in San Francisco. The guns when he talked and- 
talked about God, guns right. and you know they cl- you know people in flyover country cling to guns and God because they they're angry and they don't know what else to do. I mean that is that is something that that regardless of of whether or not you thought he was a good president or a bad president, members of the faith community were never and the frankly the Second Amendment community were never likely to forgive him for. And so I think it is it can be a powerful motivator. And also look political socialization, whether or not it's how you grow up or how you congregate be it in a social setting or in a religious setting, uh, you know, has a lot to do with with your behavior uh, when it comes to the ballot box. And so if you go to an evangelical church, uh, you know, it's not surprising that you are likely to maybe not hear it from the pulpit. But my guess is when before, you know, if you're grabbing your cup of coffee before or after the sermon, uh, you know, that people are probably espousing many similar views. Mm -hmm, That's right. Talon says, uh, Jose, on Twitter, I'm a proud liberal and a proud Christian. And I regret that liberals are inclusive to all others but us. I I, I would really caution us uh, when we're having the discussion about about religion, because it is one of those things where we just do the identity gap thing. So, um, you know, when we're talking about religion, um, notice, like, we just started talking about how, like, well, we can expect X uh, or we Mm -hmm. can expect Y. And we said, well, we can take, a, for example, you know, if we take a regular person that goes to their place of worship really regularly, we can expect this. Uh, well, what about a Muslim person that goes to their place of worship regularly, right? And notice that we just assumed when we said the word religion, right? We just yeah, we went right to Christianity. Yeah, we did. Right. We, that's exactly what we did. Right. And I think that's part of what um, what what the person that just tweeted to you was was trying to say. We've got all these assumptions about religion. Um, and I think it's partly because, one, the loudest vo- voices are the ones we associate the most. One of, one of the quickest growing groups of people in, in, the, in the country um, are people that say that they are spiritual but not religious. And for an anthropologist— These are the nuns, aren't they? Uh, the, the N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. I, yeah, younger one, people who don't identify with a specific, specific religion, group. but that doesn't mean that they don't want to be engaged in some kind of and, community. And here's where it's—I I see it as really problematic, right, because, because I actually study religion, right, and I'm an anthropologist, is if I ask them, you know, what are they talking about when they say spiritual, they're talking about religion. But the word religion has become so tainted, has been so used isn't politically. That, isn't, I was going to say, isn't that the politics religion, of it? Yeah, when right. they hear religion, they hear something gross and mean and nasty. Um, and they don't hear the human search for meaning, or they don't hear a spiritual connection with other people. They don't hear community. Um, they hear, you know, the worst stereotypes that we have of people screaming, spitting into the TV screen uh, about the evils of this, that, or the other. Um I would say we we need to rethink how we think about religion so that people who, who are saying, you know, th- there's a great need for spirituality in this country. People have that for connection. But they can't even use the word religion because we've tainted the word so badly for political purposes so that we can count votes. Let me grab a call here from Crystal in Chicago that I think really speaks to this. Hi, Crystal. Hi, how are you? Doing um, well. I was uh, weighing in on everything that everyone was saying. So I am the wife of an undocumented person, and I'm also a Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a crazy amount of backlash because I voted for Hillary Clinton. Now, uh, that didn't mean, you know, I was assumed and I was even accused of uh, being a, you know, being pro-abortion and of this and of, and of that. And I, I even had, you know, friends of mine or, or, or fellow churchgoers uh, judge me because, you know, as soon as someone posted, I remember saying something about putting, you know, putting, weighing uh, racism and abortion. 
And they're like, how can abortion be more important? You know, like they were like, how could, uh, uh, you know, abortion not be as important as racism? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a wife. That's impossible, is it? Yeah. You know, as a wife of an undocumented person, you know, I was taken back by that because I thought that the gospel was to teach love, (laughs) not hate. And so I felt like we shouldn't strip people from their, you know, from making their decisions because ultimately I cannot um, make someone accept my religion just because I want them to. Um, It has to be freely. And I don't think that, you know, that sharing hate and fighting amongst each other uh, was constructive, especially to people who are not religious. And, and if we want to get our message across of love, it, w- it shouldn't have been that way. Crystal, I- I'm, I'm curious about, just as maybe you're not talking openly about who you voted for, how many people do you feel like you can tell about your own personal family situation? You know, that has been very, very difficult. <laughs> I mean, I've spent uh, countless countless weeks um, uh, throughout this whole election process be, uh, within my therapist's office because I could not tell very many people, especially in my congregation, who I had voted for. Um, it was very difficult. Among my, you know, my husband is a taxpayer. He's never been a criminal. Um, you know, he's been very righteous. He, is, he himself is religious. Um, and we have values in our home. Um, yes, we're undocumented. And, you know, it wasn't I don't blame my husband. His mother brought him here for a better life. Um, but people don't. I, I, I understood that Trump supporters wouldn't, weren't worried about how I, the U.S. citizen, was going to be affected by this immigrant who, when you fall in love with someone, my first question wasn't going to be, do you have legal documentation? Do you have a legal <laughs> status in the country? And, you know, it was very difficult for me to be able to share. And I haven't for, with too many people what our situation is. And, and, you know, I, I also, I also feel that my stories like mine are the face of our country. And I felt that we were, you know, that we were being demonized by, you know, immigrants or undocumented people think, you know, with the stereotypes of that they were this or they were that, and they were criminals and all the things that the president has said. Um, And I do think that because of those things that he said, people did, their minds started to think and they were like, well, why didn't your husband just go through the process like everyone else did? Well, and, and Crystal, and was- uh, by the way, I'm so glad you heard the show and you had a chance to call in. But, Jose, this is why I asked whether she feels like she can tell people about yeah. his lack of documentation, because there are a lot of assumptions that get made when you tell somebody that. Absolutely. Right? Crystal, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. Yes. I'm here. Uh, Crystal, I mean, you, you're, you're very brave because you've, you put forth, right, one of those identities, undocumented. And that's one of the identities that we're talking about, that people have all the assumptions about and um, are, are ready to do anything and everything simply because of that identity. And, and I, uh, you know, people feel they need to defend themselves constantly if, if you're undocumented. I, I would, I'd like to just give you a second. Um, now that people are listening, I'm just going to ask you a question. I just want you to say what's, what's, what's true to you. So that people know who you are, a little bit about you. What is sacred to you? Um, I think that what is sacred to me is family. My family is sacred to me. My husband is a part of me. I am a U.S. citizen, and he is undocumented, and I chose to love him. I didn't know he was who he was initially, but I believe that I knew that who he was as a person, and that was important to me. And uh, for me, my family is sacred. And if that if that requires an undocumented person um, being part of this sacred part of my life, um, then so be it. 
Thank you so much. What do you hear in that in that answer? I, I, I hear uh, I hear I hear a guy in a bar who says, hey, you don't get to talk about my family. If you talk about my family, I will punch you in the face. And I like that guy. That's what I hear. Yeah, I would protect her family, too. Reed, how about you? What do you take from well, absolutely. Crystal's experience? Well, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, it is, a, is it is a, uh, you know, I think, a, as she mentioned, I think it is a very American story in 2017. Um, you know, the, her husband, uh, as she mentioned, you know, was brought here by his parents. I, who knows the the whys and wherefores of, 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 of why he remains undocumented. But frankly, they're a family now, right? They, they love each other. Uh, they attend church together. This is who they are. Uh, and, and so I think it is it is the changing, the literal changing face and makeup of the United States that I think generated so much of the, uh, you know, uncertainty and upsetness uh, that generated so much of the heat and passion and ugliness, frankly, that we saw last year. I feel like we have spent, a, a, you know, an hour listening to people say why this isn't fair. I think we need another conversation at some point through these 14 weeks about, and now what do you do about it, right? Because we didn't really have a chance to get to that, but I want to get to that because I know there are ways to, I mean, you can have civil conversations. Yeah, and and I I think we talked about, you know, what are the assumptions people make about us? And I think the next step is, what are the assumptions I'm making about people? Yeah. Right. Um, right. And, and right. Reed points out, you know, there's all this change going on and it, and it causes people to freak out. And when people freak out, they go with what they think they know. And it's these assumptions. Jose, really a pleasure to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so Thanks much for having me. Very much. Jose Santos with us, an anthropologist and professor at Metro State here in the Twin Cities. Reed, lovely to have you and, and always appreciate your insight from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. On Monday on Indivisible, you can hear Kai Wright and Ann McElvoy of The Economist. They'll take a global view. They'll be gauging how the world is reacting to the first full week of the Trump administration. And can I say, keep the tweets coming. Love to know what you're thinking here. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Indivisible back on the air on Monday. I'll see you next Thursday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.